Welcome back to the Sacred Birth Circle. This episode is dedicated to our son, Owen Nathaniel, who would be seven this week. I'm so thankful for the support of this community and for everyone who shares our episodes on social media so that we can try to save other babies in his memory. Our guests tonight are full of womb wisdom, so please listen closely. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for having us on. It's very exciting, especially because I know Owen, you know, and uh, followed you through your pregnancy after Owen's death. So, Thank you. Why don't you share a little bit about your experience, your background, just so that everyone watching will know why you're such a wise listen to. I'm wise because of this woman next to me. This is Claire Thorwick and I'll introduce her. And we actually started working. I was a preschool special education teacher before I went to the hospital and became a parent infant specialist. And I was also certified in the Brazelton neonatal assessment. So I used to do this class at the hospital called your infant as a person. And Claire would Claire was the antenatal testing nurse. And sometimes she'd call me to come and meet with a couple because she was like, I just really don't know kind of what's going on. And I watched her do biophysical profiles. And I said, I think you do prenatally what I do postpartum when I do a developmental assessment on a newborn. So that's kind of how we got started. Um, I started watching her do biophysicals and we started talking about what the baby was doing in utero and really realized that, of course, we all know development doesn't start right at birth. And so we collaborated together and um, developed a prenatal attachment program. Do you wanna say more? No, that's, uh, that says a lot right there. Um, my background in labor and delivery and uh, then uh, moving to antepartum testing, which is a system developed to prevent these tragedies. And um, whenever the, the uh, situation with the family was so complicated that we in the medical community had no idea what to do to help them out, Joanne was the one that we called and she would be able to help them sort out the issues that they would have. Bed rest was a very common uh, 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 recommendation for high-risk pregnancy people and for a mother with children at home and then pregnant and uh, supposed to stay in bed. I mean, can you imagine trying to deal with all of that and the, the feelings that would come up. So uh, there were many, many complications with these families and all the families were not always uh, ideal either. And so there were all kinds of issues that were outside of the bailiwick of the medical community. And that's where Joanne and our work together um, really, I think, it took us to a place that was rather unique in in the medical system. Yeah, it's funny. You're like, can I? Can you imagine? Doctor Joanne was smiling because she remembers I had a pregnancy after loss with bed rest for fifteen, well, seventeen weeks. I think I got two. Yes, so, and you were in a room that had scary things on the around the wall because your husband likes those. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> so Dr. Joanne was there for me. I was always on the Zoom calls, you know, trying to get support through my pregnancy after loss because it is pretty horrific. And then add on to it, having complications with the pregnancy that I had. And I had to, you know, lay there literally with the toddler at home and thank God for family and friends and community that came by and supported us and, you know, brought food and everyone just, I don't know, it's just like a moment of me feeling like I couldn't do it. And I had to give up my control and just like, okay, I have to accept help in this situation because my doctor's telling me I need to lay down or my other son might be lost as well. So you know, at that time, there was just like, okay, I have no ego about it. You know, anyone can come in my house. I'm just laying there. They just, you know, fix things for us. And my husband was amazing, you know, obviously taking care of everything else that I couldn't even do dishes. That's what how strict they were with me. So imagine his life <laughs> for yeah. half a year. Yeah. So what have you guys been finding like in pregnancies and everything? Like what's so different now? I feel like the things that you guys mentioned about the baby and, you know, I know Dr. Joanne, you speak a lot about them being in utero, having, you know, their personalities and kind of developing then. And we just don't talk about that a lot anymore, I feel like. And um, even in the discussions, you come in to get your vitals checked and that's about it, I feel like these days with doctors. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, uh, well, because I, when I was a preschool teacher, a birth in a birth to five program, I did the developmental assessments on the kids that were coming into the program. So when I was initially hired at the hospital as the coordinator for um, childbirth education, I was really struck by, now mind you, I came from the community, but I thought, and they were mostly nurses uh, doing the childbirth education. You guys are preparing them for a day in their life when they really should know more about the whole of what's happening in their life. So that's when I integrated, I took the developmental assessment into the prenatal period. And we have different points in each part of pregnancy where um, the baby kind of leads the way, you know, when they would talk about um, psychosocial tasks of pregnancy, if that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, no, it is the baby leading the way in the pregnancy. And so that was the model we developed. And it became even stronger when we started working with families pregnant after a loss, because um, you have to, using that model, you have to help parents understand that your baby that was deceased at 15 weeks still knew you as a parent and that this new unborn baby uh, understands your grief, understands what's going on. And in my research with adults who are the child born after a loss, it's pretty amazing to me how sensitive and caring they are because they learn about grief in utero. So I really believe if we can help normal pregnancy people understand the baby's already here, we can help prevent stillbirths. I mean, it's true what you just said. They go into their OB appointment and they measure the uterus, they do urine specimen, take a blood pressure, but nobody really asks, what do you know about your baby? And Claire, you are so good at that. When Before you would put somebody on the monitor, talk about that. I don't know if I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> before you even put the 
Feldtan. Um, I have to tell this story first because I don't know exactly what you're wanting me to say. But the, the thing um, about testing is that it gives the baby the chance to choose its own birthday. Uh, the tests are to predict well-being for a week. And if, it, uh, if the test doesn't uh, show positive uh, uh, characteristics of the baby, then it has to be evaluated and uh, maybe it's time to be born. Uh, and so the, the mother's intuition has so much to do with, um, you know, the general overall uh, wellness of her baby. This, the story that I wanted to tell is like, as a mother, I remember with my four kids that were very close together, all of a sudden I would get an intuition that something was different. And then I would have to check up on them. And sure enough, something was going on. And so I learned to trust my own intuition uh, with my kids. It, it was like uh, a miracle or magic or something when I would find out that I was needed on the scene with my kids. And it's the same with these mothers. When they report their concern about their babies, uh, we need to listen to that and not let the technology override uh, the mother's intuition. And if there isn't agreement about wellness uh, between the two, there needs to be more, uh, uh, more investigation into the situation. Asking more questions, yeah. Yeah, and maybe continuous monitoring and watching the baby um, continually rather than just uh, turning it all off and not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like especially nowadays, because we're so used to technology ourselves that we just imagine that the technology is perfect, you know, like, and it's not, parents, mm -hmm. you know, we go in yeah. well, and I think what Joanne was wanting me to say was when I started a test, especially when it's the first visit, I would ask the mother, tell me about your baby. Mm -hmm. And then as uh, the test was finishing, and the results showed that she she knew her baby um, and, and the test proved that she was correct about that. Then that builds up the mother's confidence in her own sense of what her baby is like. And so she's getting to know the baby and to trust herself. And I think uh, supporting that factor is the best thing we can do to keep those babies safe is to give the mothers confidence in their own knowing of their baby and the and they know their baby because they are in communication all the time and they're the only 24 uh, 7 person that's paying attention and so we have to pay attention uh, to what the mother says mm -hmm. and what the mother feels more likely because lots of times this intuition is hard to describe and uh, we just need to know 
that if she's not comfortable and secure in knowing that her baby's okay, we'd better pay attention. And really, Claire, you, when, what, what I was hoping you would say is before, when a mom came in and you would say, tell me about your baby, and mom would say, well, I was just at the doctor and he said, well, I think it weighs about five pounds now. And you would say, but what do you know about your baby? So she was teaching people to, oh, wait a minute, do I know my baby? And what do I know about my baby? And that's how, that's how I think you had no stillbirths in all those 18 years that you worked in antenatal testing. And we don't do that. I mean, that's why childbirth educators, if they could use this model of prenatal parenting, would begin to know that it's not psychosocial tests of pregnancy. It's the baby leading the way into the pregnancy as well, just like they lead us into parenting after the baby is born. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the sad thing is for all of us that lost a child that we didn't know there could be a stillbirth and a healthy pregnancy. No one really had that conversation, which is, you know, nowadays people don't want to scare anybody. Nobody wants a mother to freak out and come in 12 times in a month, you know, but in reality that could be called for, you know, those few times coming in, maybe they're wrong a few of the times, but then they finally catch it on the monitor, which they don't catch it every time as it's happening. You know, for me, it was cord compression. So you would really have had to had me in there many times before anyone would have noticed something's going on here with Owen. So I don't know how do you prepare families without telling them the risk, which is why we at Push for Empowered Pregnancy are open and saying, you know, stillbirth can happen and, and low risk pregnancy, sadly, which, you know, to me is more a signal of the level of care that we get at a low risk pregnancy than really what's going on with the mom. because you know, first time moms, it happens a lot too as well. And that's where I think the failure is as well. Like you're mentioning, the mother may not feel confident that she knows her baby more than the machine, more than the doctor. And we're just taking, you know, their word for it as we go into our appointments, like, okay, well, I feel a little bit weird, but that's probably pregnancy, right? You know? Yeah, that's what they think. And, you know, that's why it's so important. And we talked about this before, Anna, how this is wonderful, but we need to reach the normal population in order to um, help prevent stillbirths. And even then, I think of my mom that was very high risk on our high risk unit. And even after testing, she'd had a test done that morning and it was an eight out of 10 or something, but she really wanted another one done that afternoon. And they're like, no, no, this is fine. And she said, it's a different eight than the baby had last week. So she knew without the monitor and everything that what they were reporting was not really what was going on with the baby. And they actually uh, delivered the baby that afternoon because they did another test and well, wow, she was right. There was something going on with the baby and the baby needed to get out. At paternalism about not wanting to talk about um, the possibilities of trouble um, so they they don't want to scare the mother. That has to stop, and and that's what it is. I agree, and that I kind of want to hear like, how did you speak to moms? Because 
I know it's not scary because we do it with count the kicks. We, you know, we talk about kick counting and we give them the app and we make it very much more about the bonding and, you know, getting to know your baby and your normal and moms that do the app, they report that they're actually, you know, feeling less anxiety. We have research on it from the app. So, you know, people saying that it's scary, or it's too much. That is paternalism to me. It's saying we can't handle something that might be a little bit scary, of course, but it's actually information that can help us save our baby. We all want that. You know, what mother wouldn't want to be able to protect their child? We know about all the other risks you know, we don't eat sushi, we don't do this and that, whatever you guys say, we do, right? We follow the book, which is what's really sad when your baby dies and you're like, I did everything right. What more could I have done? You know, no one told me about this. Mm -hmm. Well, you have an interesting story about the woman from Africa that was- I was just thinking of that story. She uh, uh, was like, 32 weeks. And I, when I saw her, I asked her, so how's your baby? Tell me about your baby. And she looked up and it was like, she didn't really know. And she hadn't been paying attention. And so she didn't really have any idea what her baby was like. And as we were doing the test, then I said, what about your family? And she said, I have children in Africa and we're trying to get them uh, uh, to come to this country. And we've been working so hard. And I said, well, you know, this baby needs your attention too. So can you pay a little attention? Just, you know, um, be, because you, you need to know your baby. And the next week when she came in, I said, how's your baby? And she said, fine. She knew exactly. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it, it matters how you ask and if you can kind of give the mother reason for why should she be paying attention, right? Because when we go into appointments, a lot of us get told like, oh, is your baby moving or is your baby moving, you know, normally or something like that, just very vague. And you're like, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, my, of course, my baby's moving. Like, is that not a thing? Like, you know, so just having a doctor or a nurse go further with the conversation is like, you need to know the pattern of movement. You need to know the strength of movement. You need to know your baby's personality. When does your baby move most? You know, do they wake up moving? Do they, you know, after you eat move, you know, all those more specific conversations, I think would help parents to understand why you're even bringing this up, you know? Right. Are they, do they react to dad or their partner coming in or the siblings in the room? Yeah, I mean, that is the scariest thing. I'll never forget one of the moms saying in group, you know, when the midwife asked me, do you feel your baby move? She's like, yeah, I feel my baby move. And she said, I didn't realize it was the difference between life and death. So it's asking more questions and. Yeah. And I think looking at it, like you say, like more uh, psychosocial or whatever, it's not just like physiology, like the baby's growing. Like when we get these, you know, apps and stuff, they talk about the baby's this size this week. Oh, now the eyes are developing this way. You know, they talk about the physical so much. So when you're thinking about physical movement, you're like, well, yeah, that's part of development. So the baby is moving in there, but you're not really connecting to a personality or behavior like that, you know, where it's like my child is now becoming, a, you know, the person they're going to be, or, you know, my son Owen was very active in the womb. So 
imagine had I had more conversations about this, there could have been a time where there was more slowing and I might've noticed it prior to the final day when I did go in, but I feel like that's where parents need to know more about it because just saying, is your baby moving? That to us doesn't give us enough. Like, yeah, we felt a kick. What does that mean? You know? Right, right. It's what Eric, the perinatologist we worked with said, it's who your baby is, how your baby is, and if there's a difference. Is it the mom's anxiety or is it something going on with the baby? And then he would bring them in. I was involved with trying to get the mother's uh, information about the baby uh, sort of uh, formalized by doing kick counts. And so I put together uh, like a brochure about how to do that. And in the process, I had to do lots and lots of research. And to that was way back, I don't know how many years ago in the 80s. And uh, today, they still have not been able to come to agreement on what is an okay uh, kick count. So the knowing is much more than just counting kicks or knowing that there is some movement or something like that. It's much broader than that. It, it just can't be, uh, at least at this point, uh, cut and dried. It's, it's much too ethereal than that. It's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way with Count the Kicks app that they do it, just so you know, is that they measure like how long it takes your child to get to 10 kicks. And then that'll create like a graph which is not every, every child's pattern is different. So it will show, it will show a change for your baby. It won't be like, um, for my son, let's say 10 kicks in like two minutes, cause he was really wild. So if one day it took him 30 minutes, that's a red flag for me. So I think for us, at least in America, how things are now with our healthcare system, it's helpful because it reminds you, first of all, to pay attention every day like I'm going to be doing this every day, at least once a day at the same time. So it kind of gets to know when the baby's most active. And then it alerts you to think like, oh, yesterday my baby was doing a lot more movement than today. So I think kick counting in that sense can be really helpful because here, like we work, a lot of us work, we have other children, we're running around. So I think that's like preparing you to pay attention, but then you need to think of it. I think, like you said, a step further is like my baby's overall, uh, overall characteristics, right? Like how are they behaving? And, you know, the quality of the movement too is important. Like if it's weaker, that shouldn't be making you feel confident. Like, oh no, it's not as strong as he normally is. That's kind of some reason to go in, right? Right. My aunt lost a baby from a cord accident at term. And she said, why didn't they tell me? And so when that uh, activity of the baby gets wild and crazy, uh, you know, all of a sudden that's another red flag. But she said, why didn't they tell me? And she was really resentful that she had no idea what that would mean. Um, that too much activity is also a sign that something is different and needs to be attended to. 
I'm so glad you said that because there's not enough research on that one. And I, we all know why. I mean, you cannot possibly, like, let's say all the mothers that are being researched have wild movement and you decide, like, are we delivering this baby or not? Like most cases, if they notice it and you're doing a study on these women, you're going to deliver. So it's really hard, I think, to get the quality of study that they need to prove this. But so many parents report that with the court accident loss that we actually are very confident in saying that if you feel a surge of movement, like wild, frantic movement, there could be an issue happening with the cord. So actually in a couple of days here, we're going to have mommy labor nurse, another account that's a very big account with all kinds of new moms following. She's going to post about this. So hopefully that'll alert people who normally don't hear that. So I think that'll make you happy to know that, that that's going to spread right now because you know, we don't have the research to fully back it up. I know people are going to want it and they're like, oh, where's the research? You know, tell me more. I don't believe you, you know, but bottom line is a change in your fetal movement, any kind of change is a red flag. So even if you go in and they're like, oh, we don't see anything well, and you still feel something's wrong. Like you said, continuous monitoring is important because they might not catch it in that little 30 minute to an hour NST that they might give you. So I think that for sure. That's exactly the word that the perinatologist that I learned from uh, said, change. That is the key, change. And they say altered as well now. Yeah. Altered fetal movement. So we're not just focusing on a decrease. Yeah. Anything you feel like is abnormal for your baby. Right. Did you have a lot of those type of scenarios and pregnancies that you noticed that you brought in or had monitor a little bit more with a little Always bit did. I didn't understand that did she did you have a lot of those where the mom was concerned and you kept monitoring oh yes yes that was um, probably more than any other single uh, reason for testing uh, and I was very disappointed to hear that some of the testing has been uh, moved from the hospital um, that we worked in, has been, uh, 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 they're doing them in the x-ray area because of the ultrasound. And that just makes absolutely no sense that, uh, you know, they are not, they're tr not trained the way uh, medical people are in, in terms of, uh, the the complication there's there's there are so many intertwining factors, and the technicians in ultrasound are uh, more about measuring and looking for abnormalities, and so um, the whole uh, ho holistic approach of uh, pregnancy just isn't present in that department. So I don't, I think that's, uh, I was disappointed to hear that that's what's going on at the hospital where I worked, so. No, I have a friend who sadly lost the baby because the person doing it was like you said, a tech and they actually ran it all wrong. I don't even know what, if they were not experienced in doing this for a baby. I don't even know how that even happens. But, you know, she said they had her jumping up and down to get the movement that the 
you know, biological needed. And she said, well, obviously the baby's going to end up moving. You're just like sloshing him around in there. Right. And then they sent her home. And then the next day, sadly, her baby was dead. So yeah, so sad. That quick. Right. And it was full term baby, which was really shocking to me. So like how many of your, let's say babies in distress were even younger than full term or were they mostly at full term? Cause I know like anywhere after 32 weeks, I feel like that's where we see a lot of little issues going on with the, well, not little, big placental and cord issues happening. And that's where a lot of babies start to have to get rescued. And I know it's probably harder for a doctor to make the call around those time periods, but like a lot of them are full term where you're like, why didn't they just take the baby out? That doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, well you that, have, oh, I'm sorry. That's why antepartum testing was started in the first place because diabetic mothers would often lose their babies at the very end. And so de- early delivery was uh, life saving, but when uh, was not an easy uh, a thing to figure out um, because prematurity wasn't at the level that it is today in terms of how they can uh, help premature babies survive the, the lung problems that they would have. So um, it's, it's very tricky to figure out what is exactly the right time. That's why letting the baby uh, be the indicator is so important. Um, there are many ways that babies uh, get into trouble and uh, they can't always be predicted. So you just have to uh, uh, watch as close as you can and look for the best time. The timing is everything. And change is, is like we said, um, change is the uh, red flag that we need to pay attention to. I was just going to say, I remember the mom that had two losses at 32 weeks, I think. And the other just gifted thing Claire would say was, uh, you know, your test looks fine today. um, But if there's any, any change, come in immediately because you will know if there's change. And she came in the next day after the test. And the test was perfect. And the the baby needed to be born the next day and the mother knew it so the second test caught it not the first the test the test didn't catch it at all oh wow and she just said you're this test is great but go home if anything changes come back and she came back the next day and had her baby she knew there was something wrong she trusted herself instead of the test that's the key right and that's so hard. I mean, as somebody who didn't trust the test after a loss, like I, I remember myself prior and I definitely trusted it then. And I trusted everything the doctor said. And, you know, even though I was seeing different doctors in a group, you know, they all said, oh, he's perfect. Textbook pregnancy. Everything looks great. Go ahead. Continue what you're doing. Go home. You know, you're just like, oh, OK. Um even if you feel a little off, you just don't understand the offness could be something if they're not catching it, you know? So I, I feel like it's very hard, I think, to get anybody to fight against it unless they know the risk is so great. Like you can have a stillbirth. Like my second pregnancy, I was definitely a lot tougher and like, 
no matter what you're a genius but I know my body you know like I'm fighting with you you're gonna give me another test you're not right you know like that's not what I would have done if I hadn't already lost the child I would have just been like okay you're saying I'm okay I'm okay right yeah it reminds me of one of the dads in my research that said you know uh you're just the doctor my wife knows what's going on I have a quote the support partner the partners need to be able to back us up as well yeah I have a quote from a dad who said I he's he's the doctor I'm only the dad I have changed it to he's only the doctor I'm the dad that's true you're already the parent and that's what I think people need to realize as well once you're pregnant even when you're planning pregnancies you know you're already going to be the parent for this baby so you should be you know the same way as when you're going to watch them going you know to preschool and you're going to prepare everything and you're going to you know make sure well, no I know my child if he's saying this then you know I'm going to believe my child over everything else so I think that's really important Dr. Joanne, do you want to talk a little bit about your side of things with the book? Here I have it. This is a book oh, that well, I'm actually, some of my stories in there for pregnancy after loss. And you yeah. know, you have so many parents after, and it must be interesting for you guys being friends and seeing sadly your side and her side. And you know, she might have got some nuggets from you, you know, like you probably see a lot of patterns, which is what I see now with losses, you know, similar stories, similar things that got overlooked. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, well, that book's all you guys based on stories from you guys. The first book, uh, Meeting the Needs of Parents Pregnant and Parenting After a Loss, has the model of how to do the uh, prenatal attachment intervention. And uh, I wish more parents would buy it for their providers. I try to get grandparents to buy it. <laughs> um, because it's step-by-step step for each gestation, what the baby's doing, what the parent's doing, and uh, what the healthcare providers can be doing for the family. So- I think we need to make an app out of it. <laughs> Pardon? Make it into an app, and then people can see every month how their baby's doing on the app, on your phone. It's gonna have to get technical for the new generation. <laughs> we'll talk about it later maybe I can help you I do think it's important it's just hard you know there's so many books and so many things that parents read and we think you know like the what to expect when you're expecting book you read that and you're like okay I kind of know what I'm going through here now you know but it's hard for you to find books like yours where you're like this is a little more detailed this gives you more you know what you might want to actually know is going on with your baby there than just like today he's the size of an avocado you know yeah, right. Well, I sent you the handouts. I'm sure you have not had time to look at it, but I sent you the three handouts that are in the book. But it, and that's just the whole framework of um, from conception to to birth, what the baby's doing and what the parents are doing. And um, and in a pregnancy after loss, the baby's development doesn't change, but how the parents do the pregnancy changes drastically. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share a little bit about that? What you've been helping parents with? Um, what I've been helping, well, you know, I'm still doing groups and I say good night to the babies, as you know, 
at the end of each group because I always tell the moms, especially when new ones are coming, because they're like, you know, I'm only six weeks pregnant. You're going to say something about my baby. But I just say the baby is part of the conversation. The baby's been hearing the discussion. The baby knows why you are anxious and knows how much they're wanted and loved. So, um, but that's, um, you know, that's a hard thing. Normal pregnancies are going back to the normies, what one dad used to say, <laughs> the normies. We don't want to be with the normies when we take childbirth classes. Um, yeah, our concerns are very different after loss. Yes, very we, much. So. We want to learn. And we learn a lot, which is the sad thing, because I feel like all of us are like, why didn't anyone talk to us more about the placenta? Why didn't anyone talk to us more about the core? What what What's going on here? It feels like everything you find out after a stillbirth, you're like, that should have probably been discussed, especially fetal movements and, you know, how to really advocate in those situations and knowing your baby's normal and patterns and stuff. It's just you know, not at all focused on, on a normal pregnancy situation. Cause everyone I think is assuming it's going to go well, you know, mine were always like, Hey, you look great. Your baby looks great. Go on, you know, no real conversations about any of this. Right. And then always, when you see a pregnant person ask, how old is your baby? Not when is your baby due? Because that helps. It's kind of like Claire, tell me about your baby. When you say, how old is your baby? They're like, you know, 18 weeks. And then I just say something about, oh, so your baby's already hearing, your baby already knows what's going on in their environment. I think that would help a lot to have people understand um, the baby's already here and to start paying attention to it. It's just so sad that in all the years, we've, I've been doing groups for over 35 years and the losses are the same. And it's because um, until you've had a loss, you don't realize that you, you, you are in charge of your baby and that you know your baby best. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I had a really hard time connecting with my babies always. I always like thought it was such a weird experience, like very surreal and, you know, all the body parts in there, I didn't know what was what like when it kicked you, you know, and that sort of thing. So as much as I try in pregnancy to imagine a baby in there, it just feels to me like moving parts. I don't know why I just, I don't get there, but I think the way we talked about it a lot in the groups helped me with that with Jackson and like just really connecting with him in a spiritual way, I guess, just uh, emotionally, you know, always giving him the most love and like, I'm going to be, you know, keeping you safe like just trying to be like make him feel like he's safe here and you know obviously wanted like all his siblings but and it's tough after you lose a baby because you almost want to do the opposite of that you want to just be disconnected and like mm -hmm. I don't want it to hurt like it did last time you know if something happens yeah, to this too, like, that's heartbreaking you already feel like we lost a lifetime with our other son and who I already had all these dreams for and everything and now I'm going to have to be opening my heart up to another potential loss, you know, because you start to know like the statistics and everything, it's not that unlikely for it to happen again. And it definitely can happen to you if you had a stillbirth more likely. So 
I was just terrified. And, you know, you really did help me through. I just want you to know, because I'm like laying there like, oh no, something's going to happen. And you're just like very calm in the storm, you know, <laughs> like, don't, don't worry. No, we just, I just showed up to facilitate you guys. I mean, that was the power of the group, how much you learn from each other. So, yeah. But the thing that you did at the end of each uh, session uh, as support group that I thought was so valuable was to look at what's going on developmentally with each baby that was in the room. And if they, you know, when you describe the baby's development at say 22 weeks versus 32 weeks, the difference uh, it gets so clear, but it makes the baby so much more real. And to appreciate that all of those changes that are going on out of our sight. And I think the APA group that studies and focuses on all the baby's awareness in the uterus, that has been so interesting to me. Um, and to actually do study about what the baby remembers uh, in uh, when it was inside the uterus. I have to tell the story. Can I? A three-year-old uh, of a friend of ours was asked, what do, you, what do you remember about being in my tummy? And he said, when you walk too fast, it hurt. <laughs> now, how do you do scientific study on things like that. <laughs> it's, it's, we haven't figured all of that out yet. And the other thing um, he said, when you peed, it made so much noise. <laughs> you can't make that up. No, you can't. And it's really, I am the first to know it's so hard to uh, try to embrace a new baby and, and I remember when one woman started group uh, you know I would say how many weeks pregnant or where are you from how many weeks pregnant and she said uh, I don't want to say uh, I'll just say I'm in the second trimester so at the end of the group when uh, I she saw that I was saying good night to all the babies she said okay I'll tell you I'm 18 weeks and it was because she could think of herself as pregnant, but not necessarily that there was a baby in sight. And another mom said, oh yeah, she said, when you started doing that, I would be like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know there's a baby in there. But another mom said, yeah, she said, it scared me at first too. She said, but now I so look forward to it because I know the baby is there and I want to know what they're doing this week. So it's hard. It is really hard to um well that's what it's all about why we constantly are saying you still have a continued bond with owen while you are working on loving jackson yeah yeah i know for a lot of us it's tough too to find out like the gender and everything like that because yeah that came up Monday. you know oh last night yeah that came up last night because Sometimes you just think I can only see myself as a mother of another boy or they'll like, I want a girl because, oh, I just think of one mom who she did fine in the neck. She, it was a baby boy that died 
then in the next pregnancy, she was pregnant with a girl. But in her third pregnancy, it was a boy and she was petrified. She said, I know I can keep girl babies alive. I'm not so sure about boy babies. So it's, yeah, there's so many dynamics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was happy because we obviously we were so excited to have a boy and a girl. But I was also like, oh, no, now it's going to feel like a replacement baby, you know, where everyone's going to say, now you have one of each. Now you're happy, you know, and I'm like, no, I'm always going to be sad. I miss so much with Owen and, you know, I should have two boys getting to see, you know, that relationship where they're only two years apart. They could have had a really cool bond, you know, so there's a lot of things that people don't realize that it doesn't just go away with having another. No, that's what's so painful, isn't it? The others don't understand. Mm -hmm. So anybody want to share any advice for moms listening? Like, how do we empower them to really know their baby and to speak up at appointments, even if they're being reassured by technology, which, you know, we've come to really rely on. What do you guys want to tell people listening? Trust yourself. Find a doctor who will listen and understand. And yeah, and trust yourself. Trust the little kid, the siblings. Sometimes the siblings are no more than we think too. That's why I like that book because, well, in both books, there's a chapter on siblings and a chapter for extended family members. So, well, in that Brazelton thing that you do right after the baby is born, when you take the baby and, and go towards the mother and you keep talking, and then when you get close to the mother, she starts talking and the baby instantly turns to the mother because it recognizes her voice. That is so powerful. It is, it, it is. They know, mm -hmm. they know us. Yeah, and I, yeah. I wonder how many babies would have been saved by now if these conversations were more normal, you know? Even if um, you have a loss, like it's hard to speak about it after because you feel like guilty and like, oh, I didn't, speak up enough or did I not do something right and you know I just want parents who lost a child to know it's not your fault we don't blame anybody we just want to help people to really hopefully avoid it because if it's avoidable the only way will be maybe you noticing the change maybe your doctor being there at the right place the right time you know encouraging you more your support person you know backing you up if you feel off and you just want to go check it out at the middle of the night things like that like and it's hard to say because you don't know until it happens right it's not like every time it's something bad but you want to check every time because it could be a moment where you need to intervene and you don't know that and so you're there you know yeah reminds me of the video the first video we made where this mom wanted to come in and the doctor said well if if everything's all right, we'll just send you home. And she said, that's fine with me. I just need to know everything's all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, and it's hard because I know a lot of parents who have spoken up and then they've been told like, oh no, that's normal. Things change at the end of pregnancy. You know, oh. baby might be running out of space and doing things different because they're preparing for labor and, you know, whatever the misconception is it's very common I think you guys are shaking your head no but I think everyone <laughs> says it and a lot of nurses say it I want to say a lot of 
you know, ER, if you call the ER, that's, they give you the instructions to kick out and drink ice water and try yeah. to like kind of revive yeah. your baby who's already weak, you know? So it's tough, I think, for parents who don't know the correct information and then are getting reassured by providers as well. And not just providers, but the community, like your parents or your friends who had babies who might say, oh no, my baby's slow down at the end and she's just fine. Look at her, she's three years old, you know? So I think it's just the overall like community issue. We all have to start backing women up instead of questioning them so much. Yeah, true. Because I had, you know, even my posts that I put on social media and I'll say things like that, like, you know, altered movement. No, if you, if you feel a change, go in. And then moms will comment like, no, don't scare everybody. My baby was, you know, slow at the end and look, you know, she's alive and well. And I'm like, you know what? That's great for you that your baby survived, whatever was happening. You know, you might've got one of those, um, you know, save stories, like you don't know that you were a close call or not, right? Because your baby's alive, unless you have, for some reason in delivery, you can see a cord or something like that. You may never know that your baby was at risk and you're just thinking, oh yeah, that's normal for babies to change their movement. So it's like misconceptions, they come from that, you know, it's from people spreading it. So I hope with us spreading proper information, we can kind of counteract a little bit tonight. You know, as much as we speak, other people are speaking opposite to this. So I think that's why we have to just keep doing it. And sometimes I feel like I say the same thing over and over, but that's what we need to do, right? That's right. That's right. You're doing good work, Anna. Owen would be proud of you. Yeah. Thank you, ladies. I know you had a, a long day yourself, so we can make this one a little bit shorter unless anyone has any more last minute wisdom you want to share with. Well, I just had a, a memory of a baby who uh, came early because the baby made it happen. Hmm. Uh, 29 weeks contractions and the test was fine, but because she was having contractions, she was admitted to the hospital and I told her that uh, they would stop the contractions. I checked her cervix and it was long and closed. She wasn't even close to uh, ripe for labor. And um, so she went into the labor and delivery area. The next morning when I came, I said, they'll stop your contractions and send you home. That's what I expect will happen. And the next morning she came in, she wasn't pregnant anymore. That baby had made her continue her labor. And that baby was born at 29 weeks. It had had a meconium, uh, uh, it had meconium, meconium all over. In, That's, I was just thinking it, that same Yeah, in the, in the uh, uterus. And so the baby made the mother go into labor so he wouldn't get meconium in his lungs and it would be uh, a hazard to him. It would be a, a problem for him. So the baby had a very active part in, the, in his own birth that was totally surprising to me. I could hardly believe it because I'd never seen it happen before. 
I saw her. I went up to labor and birthing and saw her. And she said, why aren't the contractions stopping? I said, you know, maybe the baby knows more than we do. And the baby's in there and knows more than we do. Yep. And lo and behold, he's like, I got to get out of here. Yep. <laughs> this is not a good place for me to be. <laughs> yeah, 29 weeks is young. So I'm sure the doctor wasn't too excited about taking that baby out yet. But the baby said, nope, got to go. I'm it's I'm time here. Yep. <laughs> and you said Marconium, not everyone knows, but that's like the baby had a bowel movement. Yeah. <laughs> and that is actually super dangerous, not just sort of right. Yes. Right. If it gets in the lungs, it's bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that's amazing. That's an amazing story because the baby wasn't even near term yet. So everyone around was probably reassuring the mother and right. Her baby kept working on it. Oh, well, and the baby knew enough to stop its practice breathing. Duh. I mean, how smart can they be that we don't give them credit for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of, oh, we have tons of stories. But it reminds <laughs> me of another one where uh, she they had lost twins. And uh, in the next pregnancy, unfortunately, he wasn't, they weren't, at our hospital for their birth and he was head down and she got to six centimeters and he flipped and I'm like oh he did not want to go down through that space knowing that his siblings had died going through that space so in the next pregnancy they did have the baby at our hospital and I um and I was with them in labor and I remember looking at the clock because she'd been pushing and I said, I'm really sorry, but I have to leave in 15 minutes for a meeting. <laughs> the next contraction out he came. <laughs> and the dad said afterwards, he had a flashbacks of his twins dying. So, yeah. I was actually thinking right now uh, that you're talking about it like this. If a baby is breech, do you guys think it's good to try to flip them or just let them go the way they want to go and like have the C-section and... My my friend had a rather large baby and they flipped him so that he could uh, come head first and the baby flipped himself back again afterwards and it turned out he was 10 pounds so he knew he wasn't going to make it. <laughs> no, I agree with that. My daughter was a big girl and she just would not turn. She just yeah. would not turn. The whole pregnancy at the, the entire end of the pregnancy, the doctor kept looking and said, nope, this baby is never going to turn. So we planned the C-section for her. And I was just really nervous about trying to have him do the inversion thing. He just said it was painful. And a lot of times they flip right back. They don't, you know, stay in the position. So I didn't do that. And actually recently I read a story on the internet that a mother was trying to sue actually because they did that process and that actually caused the baby to have a loss I think it was a stillbirth or just like right after so you know you don't know where the cord is in those scenarios also I feel like things like that like I was really nervous of like the cord being ripped out of the placenta or you know entangling yeah. my baby you know so I just didn't take that risk with her but I know a lot of people are really strongly wanting a natural labor which you know obviously you can't have if you decide to go ahead and have a c-section so I kind of do wonder like maybe your baby's that way for a reason you know mine would have been probably large for me to deliver I would think and then end up in a more scary emergency situation you know 
Well, thank you, ladies. I love the stories. I think the stories really highlight a lot, you know, especially for parents listening that are pregnant now that you want to kind of think about what you're going to do. And I know we all like to have birth plans and things like that, but what do you guys think actually about birth plans before we end? Is it important to have a plan of how you want this delivery to go and who is making no. the <laughs> I say make it very simple. Tell them about your previous loss. Tell them testing that you might have done and uh, what you might need for support. And that's it. And if you're going to, um, and breastfeeding might be harder postpartum. But yeah, not elaborate birth plans. We had one mom that was, it was like one paragraph. I, my baby died at 14 weeks and I was at work in the bathroom. He died in my hands and I'm just going to need help. That's all she said. So. Yeah. How about you, Claire? Did you ever deal with birth plans with mothers coming in wanting a certain birth? <laughs> Mostly the birth plans that I saw. Oh yeah, you were the nurse in labor and birthing. They were um, impediments because so often they weren't able to follow the birth plan and the frustration and the resistance that the mother had about decisions that needed to be made. I mean, it just seemed like it was asking for a contrary kind of experience to have a birth plan. I, I, I'm, I'm not big on birth plans, obviously. Yeah, I think the problem is that nowadays there's a lot of stories of like birth trauma and people who feel like they didn't have informed consent of what was done to them in these births, which, you know, I feel like that's just all stemming from a lack of trust and communication between you and your provider. If you feel like they just took control and you didn't want it and, you know, they did things that you wouldn't have wanted. I think that's showing like you had a pretty bad relationship probably from the start of this pregnancy with this provider. Maybe you should switch providers if you don't feel like you're confident in them and what they're going to decide for you as a medical professional, you know, in certain situations where you could use intervention. So the birth plans now, I think, are like to control that to say like, no, I'm in control. Whatever is going to happen, I'm going to be the one to decide. I don't want you to do this, this, and this to me or my baby. But then you're taking away all the power from the provider who might need to do something in that moment, you know, that would save your baby's life or your own. And, you know, women nowadays um, that are talking this way, they want the natural birth. They prefer that. So they're really against the doctor having any of this power over their birth. So I know it's kind of hard because I feel like you probably had a good relationship with all your patients where you felt like they knew that you were listening to them and everything. But now if we feel not listened to, we're doing the opposite nowadays where the provider is just deciding things medically for you and you don't even know what's happening. You're just like an experiment. You know, you kind of feel like you're just being worked on instead of a relationship building situation. And maybe it's even worse now with COVID where, you know, the appointments were less in person and there were, you know, all these issues going on. So you got quicker appointments. 
So I, I just worry because I feel like we've lost that bond between a patient and the provider that used to be a, like a trusting, you know, respect and, you know, both ways. Um, and now we're, the birth plan is kind of more like a weapon, you know, to control and protect ourselves with, but is it for the best for the baby or even for yourself? You know, if you're not a doctor, I don't even know how you would know, right? Like, and no situation, I don't want to have this happen, right? I mean, it seems to me that you're trying to take the job of the doctor away, but you're going to them for that, you know? So it's kind of, I guess I'm in a pickle because I want to encourage people to trust themselves and do what they want and, you know, know their body, know their baby, but also trust their doctor and have communication with the doctor. And I don't know how to fix it. I don't know if you have any ideas. No, I think that's the power of the support group too, is when someone's saying something, another parent will just say, you know, this is what I think you should say, or this is what um, you need to find a new doctor. We were very, very careful not to undermine the doctors. You know, it was for support and it was the parents that helped each other know what to do. And the best perinatologist that I know said, you've got to listen to the mothers. And he, he was retired by then, but he'd had, he was the only doctor who was able to do um, intrauterine transfusions for babies whose mothers were RH negative and the baby was positive. When he was away, they'd have to go to St. Louis. No, yeah, St. Louis, because uh, there was no other doctor in the whole area that could do those. And he's the one that said, you've got to listen to the mother. So he knew what he was talking about. Yeah, I think that's important. And hopefully if we have providers listening, you guys take notes on this because that is, I think the root of the problem is we're not feeling listened to. And then that causes this friction between us and the medical community. So if we all have to start all over, you know, and like come into the conversation, like human beings, you know, come into your appointments. And a lot of um, people that have had been on here have talked about coming in and, you know, talk about your other children, talk about what you do. Like you got to humanize yourself a little bit more and like put yourself in the space, not just like a patient and a body, you know, but let them remember you, you know, because like with Owen, I always felt strange. Like I had different doctors every time and I didn't think any of them knew us at all. And that was definitely a downfall, you know, in our care because there was no consistency of care and nobody spoke to each other. It felt like, and I'm pretty sure that is what was happening. You know, they look at the paperwork when you walk in to see how your baby was last time and just make sure that that lines up. But you know, other than that, they don't really know you guys at all. Yeah, that's that just reminds me of when I was, uh, when I did some research in Ireland, in uh, Belfast, and uh, the mothers there carried their charts. They brought their charts into the clinic. And so I came and thought, what a good idea. They know what's going on and blah, blah, blah. And I 
would go back to the hospital and say, this is a great idea. And they would look at me like, what? Yeah. But those were, they were, uh, that population, it was right, I know people don't know Belfast, but it was the Royal Maternity where all the IRA people's partners were. <laughs> and uh, they were um, high risk. I mean, they were socially very high risk and um they but didn't matter they could they didn't lose their charts that's what everybody said oh those people are going to lose their charts and nope they didn't oh the hospital didn't have them at all they had something but the they had a copy for the doc for the mom every time she left they would copy what they did mm -hmm. oh. yeah i like that actually because a lot of times here you get testing done and you don't even know what came of it, you know, and yeah. then you'll sometimes like, well, you'll get a call if there's something wrong, but otherwise keep going, you know, you're like, but I still want to know, can we discuss it a little bit? Like how, right. how exactly great is it? You know, like, is my iron normal or is it a little bit off? I think that that's really smart. And if, you know, any parent wants to ask, you can ask for your records. I mean, it's just not common here to get them, but if you're that type of parent and you want to be really involved, you can definitely ask them to print out whatever happened in that visit and kind of keep track for yourself. Yeah, I'm hoping that gets better. I know my care at the Mayo Clinic, I get the report the next, sometimes that day or the next day, everything that the doctor said and every blood test I had and blah, blah, blah. So we need to do more of that because you would always say you're the only consistent care provider of your baby. So that's true. yeah and that's why we want you guys to all hopefully get to know your baby throughout pregnancy and see if you can find uh, Joan's first book and this is the second one we kind of we didn't go into too deep but about the parenting and pregnancy after loss if you're a parent after loss check that out um, and I think it is just up to you I mean it sucks to feel that way after especially for me because I'm like you know, I don't blame myself because I didn't know because a lot of this stuff is just brand new to me. I'm, I'm researching, I'm finding out, you know, and I know people are still losing their babies for the same similar reasons, not, you know, being told about fetal movement and not getting proper testing, not getting the test done right, you know, doctors telling you everything's fine and it's not. So all these things, you know, make it really hard for a parent who lost a child to feel like, you know, at peace, I guess. I, I've tried to find peace because I know I couldn't do more than I knew at the time. And obviously it changed me as a parent after loss and what I did for that pregnancy. I think my second son wouldn't even be here had I not learned everything from the loss that I did. Um, just like fighting for him the way that I had to at the end and him being here safely I think it's also a result of the care level that I got because it got to be with the high-risk doctor who was able to catch my incompetent cervix you know at 20 weeks who was able to do the high-risk um, situation he had to do a cerclage that was you know it was already dilating and so had I had not lost a child I wouldn't have this amazing doctor working with me for um, Jackson so it's tough because I know neither one of them, you know, they all should have got the same amount of care and I didn't get that with Owen. And I think you kind of get picked like, oh, well, you're a low risk pregnancy. So we don't need to do all the things that we're capable of. We're only going to do it for someone who we think is high risk. 
And I just feel like had I got that level of care with Owen, things could have got caught and he could have been here too. But, you know, that's not how our system works. You don't get that until you lose the baby here. No, but he knew how much he was loved. The last thing he felt was your love and your heartbeat. Heard your heartbeat. So he knew. And, and, happy I, birthday. and I would just like to say, Anna, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Yeah, he should be seven now. So. It doesn't get much easier, but like I said, this this birthday was actually one of my best ones. I didn't cry as much because I had so much love, you know, coming for him. Everyone was messaging and telling me how, you know, impacted they've been by the work we're doing in his honor and you know, everything for push for empower pregnancy now that we're doing this big push coming up October 15, which will be in Washington, DC, and anyone who wants to join us. Can be there just um, go to bigpushmarch.org and you can register and you can go there with us or you can do it in your own town and on october 15 which is the remembrance remembrance day for babies we're also kind of taking it over to kind of demand change as well because at least for many of us we feel like if more was done our babies could have had more of a fighting chance and we want that for other families so we're going to be marching for that all together on the 15th. So right. if you have a chance to go on social media and post a picture, um, we're actually pushing empty strollers, which is symbolic of our babies not being able to come home and making sure people realize that like, we didn't just lose a pregnancy. We lost a child, you know, for the rest of their life. And we don't want people to go through this if it could be preventable. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Really appreciate it. I, I hope tonight we've helped empower a parent out there to keep pushing, keep fighting for your babies, and make sure that you get the care you both need. And hopefully, arrival will be smooth and you know safe and everything. It's hard because we can't prevent every loss, but I do think these conversations help prevent the ones that are preventable. You know, hopefully that is Owen's gift to the world. I keep trying to save babies. And you know, I couldn't keep him here, but I hope that you guys will have a chance to see your children grow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good night, everyone. Thank you. It's my heartfelt prayer that this information will help someone bring their baby home safely in honor of my son, Owen. Thank you to our guests for your womb wisdom, and we'll see you all at the big push. Remember to share this episode on social media so you can help others in your circle grow their knowledge and have a better birth outcome. Remember that all the posts that we share and our episodes are not meant to be medical advice. We are simply trying to help you and inform you as you continue your pregnancy, but always remember that you should consult your provider if you have any questions or concerns. They're there to help you and they are available to you 24 seven, even if you have to go into the hospital or ER. Again, follow us on social media to continue up to date with our next episodes and our posts. And feel free to connect with us in the DMs. If you have any questions, we would be happy to be there for you. You are not alone. This is your community. And we hope that you will continue to watch our future and past episodes to continue to add to your knowledge as we interview birth workers, 
providers, researchers, and even people who have experienced different births so that when you get to your birth, you'll be a little bit more informed and prepared for whatever comes your way. Goodbye for now.